Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we pray that you will help us to know you as the coming one this morning, that you would help us to grasp the magnitude of that day and be grateful for your words and be expectant. Um, Lord, bless us uh, with, um, with your understanding this morning. Bless us with your presence. Bless us with that sense of anticipation. In your name we pray, amen. So we're in Advent. Advent is the appropriate time of knowing Christ as the coming one. Um, this is actually an essential part of our faith. We confess that Christ is coming again when we say the creed. Um, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, I think that phrase falls a little hard on our ears. Uh, the very concept of the Lord coming to judge the living and the dead isn't some kind of inspiring statement to us, but it ought to be. In fact, it's a really important part of what it means to be a Christian is actually to enter into the intercession of the church which prays Maranatha, the last prayer of the scripture. Even so, Lord Jesus, come it's a yearning and an uh, expectation and a joy to pray this prayer. And I want us to kind of keep that in mind as we begin to metabolize Jesus' teaching here. This is uh, the section, if you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 24. It'll be a lot easier to follow along. Uh, this is part of a discourse, a, a sermon that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And, uh, and there's a lot in here. Um, obviously, we've been spending some time in this passage and and so we're gonna take on this kind of chunk of it. Jesus wants to be known as the one who's coming. And some of us may be a little ambivalent about that dimension of our faith because sometimes the way it's described, it's very troubling. It's troubling news. It's hard to understand. And indeed, for some people, the second coming of Christ will be hard. But not for those who belong to God. I find it uh, just really important to continue to remind ourselves often that the teaching of Jesus is not meant to make us feel ambivalent. I think some of us struggle with this a lot, that we spend a lot of our time kind of in suspended judgment. We don't really know where we stand with Christ. We don't really know whether we can be confident on the day of his return. We're not really sure that he loves us. We don't really know for certain his disposition towards us. We, we read that he loves us. We hear that we're okay with him in Christ, that on that day we'll be made together with him somehow, but we're very ambivalent about us. That is not the purpose of Jesus' teaching. The disciples are very clear that we are to have confidence on the day. And so that's one question I want to ask us. Are you confident? The Lord can work through us so much better when we're confident in his love. To the degree that the saints are ambivalent, it's harder for the Lord and the Holy Spirit to kind of move through ambivalent people to bear witness to the power of Jesus Christ. And the teaching of Jesus is never meant to make us feel ambivalent. There's a big difference between, between feeling vaguely guilty and having authentic repentance. 
and we get that confused. Right? There, it's good to have godly repentance and godly sorrow. It is not good to feel vaguely guilty and ambivalent and to respond to sermons with a feeling that I'm just not measuring up. You know, this is not where the words of Jesus should take us. And it is certainly the case here in this difficult passage where Jesus is talking about the upheaval of the last days. Remember, the fruit of this teaching in John and Peter and Paul led to extraordinary confidence. And that's what it should do for us too. When Jesus, when John, and I, I raise those three guys' names because they contribute to the letters of the New Testament, and so you can read what they thought about it. John, of course, said, even so, I mean, after the entire book of Revelation, which is some of the most disturbing stuff that Christians will read, the impact for John was to say, come and come quickly. That's what it did for John. You know, here's how Paul says it, and I think, uh, this is a great framework for reading this kind of teaching. I'll describe it in a minute, but uh, some of you may be familiar with Paul's statement in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Here's how Paul talks about this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the net effect on Paul of this kind of teaching. I don't hear ambivalence. I don't hear grief or kind of vague guiltiness. I hear a robust and vigorous affirmation of the return of Jesus Christ. And we could just go on. Peter talks about this. John does in more places. That's why in Advent we enter more fully into the church's intercession. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. We'll be singing that. That's my favorite Advent hymn for a lot of reasons. Also because I love the Jewish people and I hear both of that literally and figuratively. But that's the cry when we know Jesus. We want him to come. We want him to come. So don't push away the teachings of Jesus here. Don't push this stuff away, but welcome it and embrace it. It's hard to get through, but we'll, we'll keep working our way through this. This kind of stuff is, uh, is called, uh, sometimes scholars will call this apocalyptic literature. Have you ever heard the word apocalypse? Sometimes you'll find that creeping into like, you know, movies and things. Uh, oftentimes it's just kind of a scary word, you know, uh, a lot of suffering and upheaval and turmoil. It, it's a Greek word. It's actually what the book of Revelation is. It, apocalypse means to reveal, to disclose. Um, something that's hidden is now becoming manifest. And the apocalyptic kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here is the way in which the final manifestation occurs. So there's gonna be a lot of movement because what's giving way? What's giving way is the world of sin and death. 
and it's giving way to the kingdom of heaven fully and completely in righteousness. That's gonna be hard for the people and the powers that are kind of united to the movement of death. All right, they're not gonna let go easily. And so the apocalyptic description of that day does entail an upheaval. So as Jesus is now in the sense of the gospel narrative, he's moving closer and closer towards the cross. The cross and the resurrection are of course in some ways the initiation of the end. It's kind of like D-Day. You know, the war ends, but the battle continues until it's fully realized. And so as Jesus moves more closer to the cross, he's beginning to say things that are disturbing to his disciples and the people around him. Uh, Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus said not one stone of the temple will be left Uh, on top of each other. It's all gonna be pulled down. Well, this is very disturbing. And so the disciples wanna know, what are you talking about? All right, now I want us to not miss an important feature here. And you'll see this, um, uh, and you'll see this at the beginning of chapter 24. His disciples came to point out to him the buildings and he says, you know, you're gonna see this all torn down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives is right across the valley from the Temple Mount, all right? And it's kinda like a big campground during the high holy days because there's a lot of people in Jerusalem and so they kinda camp out on the Mount of Olives. It was a place to retreat. So he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately and they asked him. And what did Jesus do? He said, okay, I'll tell you. It's a beautiful thing. He didn't say, I'm gonna tell you riddles and I'm gonna make this even more confusing and I'm gonna make you even more disturbed and I'm not gonna actually answer your questions. It may seem like that sometimes because Jesus does say things that are initially hard to understand. But I I don't want us to miss this, that when we're thinking about this sermon that Jesus is giving, it's in the context of Jesus kind of sitting there with his disciples gathered around. He's not yelling, right? He's not gesticulating, you know. He's sitting there with them and he's sharing with them an answer to their question. It's very moving and I encourage you to think of your own questions in this way. Use your imagination and sit yourself down with Jesus on the Mount of Olives and and ask him what's coming and he'll tell you just like he does for the disciples here. And you'll notice in our first section of this passage we're looking at, verses 29 to 31, it's not confusing when you read it straight through. He says, let me tell you what will happen. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, which will cause the nations to mourn, and he will send out his angels to gather the elect together. Now those might be unusual ideas for us to ponder, but it's not a riddle. He didn't dress it up. He said exactly what's gonna happen. Now, um, 
apocalyptic literature like this draws heavily on allusions from the Old Testament, and we won't go into all that this morning, but just to say that this wouldn't have sounded entirely strange to the disciples. And in fact, it's not so strange to us that we can't quite understand what's happening here. Um, what's happening is that uh, there's, a, uh, the, the, there's a breaking forth of the promise of God. Now, let me explain something about apocalyptic literature. Okay, because there's a couple of places in the Old, Te- uh, Old and New Testament that, that do this sort of thing. Do you know where the idea comes from? The idea that there is an apocalypse at the end comes from the fact that God said there's meaning to history. That's where it comes from. So before Abraham, there, there was no purpose. The, the, this, there was a cycle of life. There was the coming and going of the seasons. There was the rhythm of the harvest. And, and people worshiped the gods that seemed to kind of be in control of those processes. But there wasn't a point to it. If you had asked an ancient person, what's the point to it? They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Until God interrupts this and says to Abraham, there's a point. I am going to call you, and through you, I will bless you and all people. And he begins to cast a vision in Israel, slowly over time, of shalom, of the restoration of the way that things should be, and that we know they should be. We know that death is, something's wrong with that. People have always known that. And God validates that, and he said, yeah, there's that sense that it's not quite right, that's true, and it's not the end of the picture. I'm going to enter into a covenant with Israel through which I will bless creation. And that blessing finds its home in the restoration of peace. And all the way along, God is revealing, that word apocalypse, revealing more and more and more of what that peace is going to look like. And we heard such a moving description of it in our passage from Isaiah this morning, where the swords would be beaten into plowshares. There are these pictures of shalom that as God's people pull back the veil and show a little bit more of what it's going to be like, that there is a purpose and a destiny to history. And partly what that does is it ramps up a little bit of the tension because now the contrast between God's world and the world of darkness becomes more sharper and it builds more pressure and we feel the pain a little bit more acutely because we're seeing something that needs to give way to something else. And that's the intercession of the church. That's where God's people pray. And it's where God's people speak. And it's where we bear witness. And it's the very place where we're supposed to stand without fear because no one else but God's people knows that God's word is dependable. And that's our, that's our call in life. And it's all different. Some people will be in the field. Some people will be at the mill. All of us have very different lives. 
and each life of a believer is essential because you're called to be in your place bearing witness to that kingdom which is breaking in. And that's what Jesus is describing. You can hear this so clearly coming up in the Lord's Prayer. What's the first thing we do after we give worship to God? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What do we pray next? Your kingdom come. That's the prayer of the church. It's the most important prayer. And why is that? Because it gives meaning to everything that comes afterwards. Our daily bread isn't just our daily bread, and it is essential. I don't mean to diminish that. It's not spiritualized bread that we eat. We have to have real bread, and God cares about that. But it's also a taste of the heavenly bread. Every Christian, just like every Jew who eats earthly bread, is tasting a little bit of manna in there. Every time we break our earthly bread, we're taking a little bit of the Eucharist into our mouth. We know that. Every time we gather around a table with our family and friends and loved ones and the poor and the needy, we're also gathering around the great banquet table that is awaiting us. And that's the world that's breaking in and has been broken into through Christ and now into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who Paul says is the down payment of our inheritance. That's our mission. That's our calling. That's what makes our lives so important. It's not the opposite. Some people say, oh, if you believe in the end of the world, then this one is no longer important. It's the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Because we know this world is going to be renewed, this one is so important. You have a vital role to play in that, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples, I want you to know something, that my angels, which are an expression of my sovereign authority that always do what I tell them to do, my angels are going to gather together the elect. That ought to give us great confidence. You are God's elect. Don't be confused about it. We're not supposed to be on the fence about this. If you place your trust in Christ, if you believe in him, that he has suffered death for you and has risen again to give you newness of life, then you belong to him. That's what the Bible says. And you participate in his people and you inherit his promise. I encourage all of us in our Advent devotion to contemplate the truth of that. You know, to the extent that we view Advent as a kind of a a mini Lent. It's not to deprive ourselves of truth. It's actually to remove distractions so that the truth is more evident and we can feast on it more fully. Right? Amen. All right. (laughs) Father Eric is a great teacher of this to, to me and to all of us. That's what's happening and what Jesus is describing the angels, God's, they're, they're, they move in God's power and authority. Unlike the disastrous and chaotic forces of evil, God's angels move at his command to gather up the elect from the four winds. And as I always like to say, that's us, because we're a long way away from Jerusalem. It's miraculous that on the shores of Lake Michigan there are people who fear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I just never get over it. It worked. Right? We're those people. When God said to Abraham, all the ends of the earth and so forth, we're, the, we're there. 
and we're sharing together with Christians from the other four winds to the testimony and triumph of the power of the cross. And now Jesus gives us some, some advice in, in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn the lesson. And he says, look, when the, you know the fig tree, because you're all farmers, right? And you know when the figs are coming. And when they come, you know that the fruit is near. So, all is, so also you, he says, don't, don't get distracted. When you see things happen, know that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's words are stronger than granite. They're stronger than whatever is strong. They're, they're going to, because now physics keeps coming up with stronger things than granite, and I don't know what they all are, but there are strong things in the world, and Jesus' words are stronger. <laughs> they won't pass away. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sobered by the intellect of Stephen Hawking, uh, of blessed memory, um, a very bright man, brighter than I could even hope to be. Um, and I think about his words, about his confidence and his intellectual capacity to grasp the meaning of the universe. And then I think of Jesus' words, and it's quite striking that, that, that his words will out, outlast the universe. And that's what we're dependent on, and that's what Jesus wants us to know, that no matter what we see, no matter how crazy it gets, his words are dependable. And then he wants us to know that there is going to be times of change that are destabilizing to people. Okay, and this is what he's talking about in verses 36 and following. He says, okay, guys, concerning the day and the hour, all right, now he's getting to their question, because remember the disciples asked, when is this going to happen? And basically he says, not to disappoint them, he says, really, frankly, nobody knows. It's, it's, it's not right for you to know. It's not, it's not the thing that God wants you to know is when it's going to happen. What he wants you to know is that it's going to happen and that it could happen at any time and that in all kinds of ways it, it is already happening. So if we get too focused on like a destination of like the, the, the logistics, we're going to lose the heart of the matter, which is the relationship with Jesus Christ and the expression of that relationship out into the world with other people. If we don't, if we get distracted on other things, we're going to lose the heart of the matter. And Jesus wants us to know, well, that first of all, it's already arriving with me and it's arriving in your life through faith in the gospel and it's working itself out through the Holy Spirit and you're going to see signs of that kingdom even now and you're going to be ready when I come. That's the important thing is the readiness. How is it that we're to be ready? Well, it's certainly not by doing all kinds of extraordinary things. And this to me is a blessing that the, the examples that Jesus uses are so mundane. There's going to be two guys out in the field. There's going to be two ladies at the mill. So ordinary. So mundane. This is not spectacular. He's not saying you have to do some crazy thing. He's saying in the course of your life, you won't even probably know the difference often between 
the elect and the non-elect. That's other parables that may come to mind, you know, the wheat and the tares growing up together. There are times when it's not even our purpose to judge in that way. The difference is the relationship. One person belongs to God and the other doesn't. And what Jesus is saying, it's the belonging that's the difference. It's the belonging that makes you ready. It's your connection to me. It's your abiding in me. It's your faithfulness to my words that, that I want you to focus on. Just like in the days of Noah, they were kind of, una- a lot of people were just kind of unaware. Now, Noah wasn't unaware exactly. Noah, like the elect and like the disciples, and like you and me, have a lot of information. Right? Noah had been set out with a task, but even he did not know the day. He was just simply to be ready, but he was. He was prepared. And because he was prepared, that little motley crew, you know, was saved and delivered, and it becomes a, a symbol of the church. So the question for us really is, have we made that framework our own? Um, have, have we made this part of our reality, ourselves? This isn't just a theological statement that we sign to. It's actually a framework for understanding our, our lives. Our lives are actually directed towards this end. Jesus is talking about you and me. So this isn't just kind of like a theological statement uh, that, that we have to kind of agree to. It's actually a way of living our lives now. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Be ready. You're, you're not supposed to know the time. You're supposed to know the way. That's the difference. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. We can't know the exact hour, and that's not the point. So Jesus says, stay awake, because that's more important than knowing the time. Um, And he uses this odd story about a thief. And, and you'll know this now by Jesus' teaching, if you're familiar with it, that sometimes he'll use this comparison of the lesser to the greater. If the bad father knows how to good give, give good gifts, even the God will give better gifts, you know. If the unjust judge knows how to do something, think even more will God do something. And here's the same kind of thing, because Jesus is not a thief, all right? In fact, he said that the enemy is the thief um, who comes to rob, steal, and destroy. And so here, Jesus is saying, it's kind of like the suddenness part of it. So if you knew when the thief was gonna raid your house, you'd probably stay awake. And actually, it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, living in this world does at times feel like we're vigilant, that we're actually awake at nighttime. You ever find yourself awake at nighttime? (laughs) Yeah. A lot of us find ourselves awake at nighttime. A lot of us do, it looks like, judging by the audience reaction here. And oftentimes what's keeping up, us up at night is the darkness, not just the darkness outside, but the darkness inside. And the, and the darkness around us and other people. We feel this way. And, and we can feel like that person in this kind of metaphorical home. Somebody's coming with a threat. Somebody's coming to rob me. 
there's something undermining my sense of security, which is what my home is all about. It feels precarious. It feels on the edge. And I'm going to have to stay awake somehow to kind of keep this thing going. Or my mind is searching for a problem. And Jesus knows that. We are living in a certain way at the, in the nighttime. And that's what's giving way to the light of Christ. And he's saying, when you're awake, be with me. Be in my light. You know, I love that phrase from John that says, in the light of Christ we see light. In his light we see light. That comes from Psalms. So I want us to, you know, as we kind of think through our response to this passage this morning, I don't want us to respond to this by saying, uh, I'm not blank enough, fill in the word. You know, there is a sense of conviction that should arise that if our hearts are united to the things that are passing away, we're going to feel pain. Jesus said that when the sign of the Son of Man would be made visible, in verse, uh, um, verse 30, um, it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They're mourning because it's the giving way of the thing that they were trying so desperately to build in opposition to God. And to the extent that our hearts are united to those things, it will hurt. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And if your treasure is being put into things that are passing away, you will feel the sting of a loss. And so there is a godly conviction about the allocation of our heart's resources. If we're fending him off, if we're ignoring him, if we're ignoring other people and the stewardship that he's given us, and we're investing in, instead in our own flourishing in the wrong way, um, then we're going to feel the loss of that. And the Bible is clear that we ought not to do that. We don't need to suffer in that way. But the response to this sermon isn't just simply a godly conviction. I mean, it's right to feel a godly conviction about whether our hearts are united to things that are passing away. That is a godly sense of conviction. It is not godly to just simply be vaguely guilty in general. I'm not blank enough. I'm not measuring up. I don't know what's wrong with me. All right, that's a different kind of discernment. What you need there is pastoral care. You need to hear the gospel. You need to know that Christ has died for you. You need to know that he's not ambivalent about you. You need to know where you stand with him. If you're complacent and if you're united to things that are passing away, that is a cause for repentance and for change. Here are some questions that we can ask ourselves in closing to kind of take more fully this teaching into our hearts. How is Christ present to you right now? Right now, how is he present to you? He's the one that's coming then, but he's come now through the Holy Spirit. How is Christ present to you right now? That's an edifying question because the answer will be edifying and he'll show you how is he present to you right now. Here's another question. Where is Christ at work in you and around you right now? 
Where do you see the inbreaking kingdom right now? Can you name that? It's okay if you can't. I don't ask these questions because you can name them, but you ought to be able to. It's encouraging. It gets your mind grounded in the right process. Here's another question. Can I give thanks to him right now for his gifts, for his words, for his sacrifice, for his spirit, for the fact that you're elect into his family? Have you given thanks for that fully and completely and at length so that it's something that you're beginning to experience? Do you know yourself as elect? And then when it comes to those places of conviction, of repentance, ask yourself, where is he moving in you right now to sanctify you? Sometimes the obstacles we face to him are just sheer rebellion. Sometimes they are. But usually it's rebellion plus. Like we're running from something. Sometimes anger, for example, you know some of this stuff. Anger is an expression of shame. Sometimes you know, anger is an expression of fear. There, there's complexity in why we move away from Christ and from other people. And it's not always immediately clear to us, but God wants to make it clear so that he can heal that, so that you can hear the hard word and repent and receive forgiveness and new life. Ask yourself, where is he moving to sanctify you? And reconcile those hard places to him those places that are split off and scattered around that God wants to bring into himself. These are the ways that we move into the flow of his kingdom and we keep our lamps full, which is one of his teachings to come that we'll hear about. His words in verse 45 are not, this is the end of the world as we know it. You know that old, what is it? Who's saying that? Something with an R, I think. Who? R-E-M. I was gonna say R-E-O, but then... Yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. That cynical, depressing, this is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is the son of man is coming, the king, the bridegroom, the Messiah, the way of the sinful, destructive world is passing to give way to the new world. So don't put your confidence in those things into the mourning world of diminishing power. Put your faith and your trust and your hope and your love into the one who loves you and whose words will not pass away. Amen.